Welcome to the Naples Community Church Podcast with Pastor Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you find this sermon inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. We trust God has great things in store for you. Enjoy today's message. The text I've chosen for today that I've been thinking about for six and a half years comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Friends, hear now the word of God. Now in mid-September, all the people assembled at the plaza in front of the water gate and requested Ezra, their religious leader, to read to them the law of God which had been given to Moses. So Ezra the priest brought out to them the scroll of Moses' laws. He stood on a wooden stand made especially for this occasion so that everyone could see him as he read. He faced the square in front of the water gate and read from early morning until noon. Everyone stood up as he opened the scroll and all who were old enough to understand paid close attention. To his right stood Mathaliah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. To his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malachijah, Hasham, Has, Badinah, Zechariah, and Meshulan, or something like that. <laughs> then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people said, Amen and lifted their hands toward heaven. Then they bowed and worshiped the Lord with their faces toward the ground. As Ezra, as Ezra read from the scroll, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseelah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites went among the people and explained the meaning of the passage that was being read. All the people began sobbing when they heard the commands of the law. Then Ezra the priest, and I as governor, and the Levites who were assigning me said to them, Don't cry on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. It is a time to celebrate with a hearty meal and to send presents to those in need, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Friends, the word of God. Ever receive a really difficult assignment? Ever be asked to do something you thought you can't possibly do? I want to tell you as we begin about Gerald Kleinsfeld from Omaha, Nebraska. He had a dog he loved named Boomer. Boomer was a small mixed breed dog and they were best buddies. And one day they were out in the front yard and Boomer was doing his business and Gerald's talking to the neighbor across the hedgerow and to prove his point that Boomer was obedient and smart, he said, Boomer, sit. And Boomer sat at attention. He said, Boomer, stay. And Boomer 
didn't flinch. He then continued the conversation with the neighbor. After a few minutes, the front door to the house opened up and his wife called out, Gerald, your phone keeps ringing. I finally answered it. It's Tom from work. I told him you'd come and get it. Here it is. So he left and went back in the house and talked on the phone. But he sat down because the game was on and he started watching the baseball game. And a storm comes through and the wind blows and rain came down in sheets. And after 40 or 50 minutes, the storm moves on. His wife walks through the living room and says, where's Boomer? And that's when his face lit up. And he went to the front door and opened it, kind of in a panic. And there was Boomer sitting exactly where he had left him, drenched. And on his face was an expression of abandonment. <laughs> but he had completed the assignment. Sometimes in life, we receive difficult assignments, don't we? Today's text is a story of a difficult assignment that God gives to his servant, Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king, Artaxerxes, in Babylon, Persia, modern-day Iran. He's there because in 588, God allowed the Babylonians to sweep down to destroy Jerusalem, ransacking the wall, burning the gates, carrying the people back into captivity. They're there for 120 years. Nehemiah, who works now for the king as his cupbearer, really he was a butler, has never been to the land of his forefathers. He's grown up in Babylon. He works for the king. One day, some visitors come to the palace who are from the Holy Land. And so Nehemiah takes the opportunity and he says, tell me, how are things back in the land of my fathers? And the report he gets is dismal. The walls are in shambles. The gates have been burned. The morale is low. The crops are not being planted. Other people live there who don't care about the Jewish God or rules. And it breaks his heart. He begins to mourn. He has empathy. He feels the pain of the people he's never met in the land he's never been to. And the text tells us he begins to pray. Not once or twice. Not one week or two, but for four months. Four months he prays because God has whispered in his ear, Nehemiah, I want you to go do this. This is your assignment really big. So he prays for four months. And when he approaches the king, he's surprised that the king not only says, yes, you can go. He says, I'm going to send my soldiers to accompany you to protect you. And I'm going to give you some written papers so that you can get wood from the forest of Lebanon. Understand this was a big assignment because the walls around the circumference of the city is a mile and a half. Some places are 90 feet tall and 30, 40 feet thick. It's a big assignment because it's 800 miles away. It's a big assignment because who's going to give him the authority to do what God is sending him to do when he gets there? A big assignment. 
When he gets there, he meets three forms of opposition. First of all, it comes from the people, the clans who now live there. God's people have been gone for 120 years. Neighboring people have moved in. They have a little Jewish blood, some degree. Most of them are Samaritans, intermarried with neighboring peoples. They have no interest in God's people rebuilding the walls of the city and the Jews coming back and taking over. So they discourage them. They attack them. They try to dissuade them. So frequent and prevalent are the attacks that the text tells us that Nehemiah tells half of the people to work on the wall. The other half have to hold weapons and stand ready to fight those who are coming to stop them. Opposition number two comes from fatigue. Chapter four tells us that when the project was about half finished, the strength of the people began to give out. It's understandable. These are not masons. These people come from all walks of life. Some are females, some are children, some are men. And they're doing physical labor, sun up to sundown. They're ready to quit. This job is huge. So what does Nehemiah do? He says, new plan. From now on, everybody will work on the wall adjacent to their own home. You see, their homes were in the wall, but on the inside. Now there's no commute to the work site. You quickly go home for lunch, and you want to make sure the wall is done just right because it's right next to your house. Motivation increased. Work continued. Opposition number three, we read in chapter five, comes from the, within the Jewish people, the rich are trying to profit from the poor. They're charging high interest. Nobody's working in the fields. They're all working on the walls. And so the poor or people are having to borrow money, mortgage their fields or their stuff or even their children to get money to buy food. When Nehemiah hears about it, he intervenes. He gets in their face. He says, this is not right. We're on the same team. This has to stop immediately. And it does. When we study Nehemiah, we learn about leadership. He's a great example of how leaders act. We also learn about prayer. Eight times in the book of Nehemiah, he faces a situation and he immediately shoots up a prayer to God. And sometimes he prays on an ongoing basis to God. He believes in prayer. He has the respect of the people. And he's a strong leader. We remember him. We celebrate him. But I want you to hear me say today that this story is really not about rebuilding the walls. We remember he rebuilds the walls, but they're the means to the end. And the end happens in chapter 8, the climax of the book. When the walls are finished, it takes 52 days, by the way, they decide to hold an all-day church service. And they build a platform so the, the priest, Ezra, can climb up and be elevated among the people so he can be better seen and better heard because there's 42,000 of them. And he starts reading at sunrise. Also understand, these people listening have never, ever heard the word of God. They've been in captivity. No synagogues allowed in captivity. No reading of God's word. No public gathering, worshiping some foreign god. Not allowed. So they're anxious. 
They're hearing it for the very first time. And when God's word is read, it's like a mirror being held up, and people begin to see what they look like. And for some, it provides encouragement. For others, it provides conviction. Same mirror, different responses based on where we are and what God wants to do in us. But here we see the people are hearing it for the first time, and what they're learning is we've kind of gotten off track. What God wants is not who we've been. We need to make some changes. So it says they begin to repent. Renewal breaks out. Friends, this is what God was after all along. God doesn't care about walls or bricks or stones or mortar. He cares about changed hearts, changed lives. Something he can do, something he wants to do. Then and now, we serve a God who still touches and changes hearts, still changes lives, wants renewal in communities and among his people. I love the story. The climax comes when Nehemiah goes to the microphone, figuratively, and says, it's time to celebrate. You've heard God's word. You've responded well. We realize we're off track. You've repented. We've seen renewal. Now it's time to celebrate because as we remember who God is and who we are, we have reason to give thanks. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. If you read any of the bio that was on the screen or sent out to you, you know I work for Hope Hospice, covering Hendry and Glades County. I want to introduce really quickly a friend, Scott. Raise your hand quickly, Scott. Another chaplain for Hope Hospice. We worked together. He knew I was going to be here today, so bless him and his wife, Laura, who came down to listen. But every day he and I are reminded that we visit people who love God and who are facing end of life. Sometimes a visitor, the illness shows up, knocks on the door, barges in and refuses to leave. And we come alongside folks and we remind them that which they already know. God's in control. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. On earth, we're just passing through on the way to our real home, which is in heaven. To be absent from these earthly bodies is to be present with the Father for those who believe. For no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind even imagined all that God's prepared for those who love him. I could go on and on. We tell him the best is yet to come. And it's not a shtick. It's the truth from God's word. And sometimes in our busy lives, we lose sight of the temporal and the eternal. And we kind of mix them together. And it's easy to hold on tightly to the wrong things and to lose sight of the important things. We visit people every day and remind them, God not only gives us the strength for what we're facing, he will give us joy even in the midst of the challenge. That's the incredible part about today's story. It isn't just that God walks beside you when life is hard. It's that God gives you joy, even in the midst of the storm. The joy of the Lord can be our strength no matter what. Here's how I know that. I've read the Bible. You know the story of Job? Loses everything he has. Next day goes to church. His wife said, Job, you're just a fool. 
curse God and die. Don't we all want a spouse like that? You know what Job said? Am I going to worship God in good days and not in bad? Heaven forbid. I want that to be my motto too. God, I love you no matter what. It's not about the stuff. It's not about which way the ball is bouncing. It's about you. And God, if I never get another break beyond the gift of salvation you've already given me and the sins you've forgiven me for, I should be joyful and thankful every day from here to the end. I don't need any more breaks. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. What about Stephen? Book of Acts. Raises his hand, sings a song to God. They're picking out stones. They're getting ready to stone him. Was he deluded and stupid? No. The joy of the Lord was his strength. And then there's Daniel. Refuses to bow before the golden idol. Continues to pray publicly even though it's illegal. They threaten him. He continues. They throw him in the den of lions. Why would you do that? The joy of the Lord was his strength. Heard the name John Huss before? 1415, he was burned at the stake for his faith. Died singing to him. That's just irrational, friends. But when the joy of the Lord is your strength, things are different. My last example comes from 1970. Country of China, where at the time it was illegal to be a Christian. Four families dug a room out underground and it's where they held church. There were 16 of them. And one day the local officials were doing road construction and there was a cave-in. They discovered the local church. Underground. They were asked if they were Christian. They said yes. They said, you know that's illegal. They said yes. They said, you're going to be killed unless you deny your faith. They said, we cannot deny our faith. They said, lay down, we're going to drive over you with this steamroller unless you recant. They sang Amazing Grace as they drove over them one at a time. Imagine the song getting quieter and quieter as there are fewer singing. How do you die like that? The joy of the Lord was their strength. That's how. When we belong to the Lord, when he lives in us, it changes things. Changes our understanding of who we are and why we're here and what we're to be about. When we receive God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, it anchors our soul to the rock that never moves. Does it move when the storms of life come, when life is unfair, when the assignment we are given is difficult? No matter what, we can have joy, and that joy becomes our strength. Eight years ago, I left as a pastor at New Hope Presbyterian in Fort Myers. Six years ago, I went through a painful divorce. Four years ago, I met and started dating someone named Diane. And two and a half years ago, Diane and I got married, and I moved in with her and her two teenage boys. The oldest, Adam, he's now 21, time was 17, is a special needs boy. He's nonverbal. He's autistic officially. His mentation is age five. And he's very sweet. And every day he goes to his job down at Lark, downtown Fort Myers. And he gets on the bus. 
and he had to have a briefcase when he got this job because I have a briefcase and he was going to work so he needed one and so every morning at 7 a.m. he waits out in the driveway with his briefcase in one hand and his Barney lunch pail in the other it's quite a sight the other boy was age 16 at the time he's now 20 his name was Johan and when I met Diane and moved in I didn't meet her move in the same time we dated two years and then we got married and moved in <laughs> Johan was an angry young man and the symptoms flowed out in a variety of ways he stayed in his room he played games video games he dressed in black he listened to goth music he was angry and depressed he was Baker acted three times for trying to hurt himself every Sunday Adam and Diane and I went to church we divide him he'd say nope then one evening he came downstairs walked in the bedroom and he saw me kneeling on the bed praying He said what are you doing I said I'm praying for you he said oh the following Sunday he asked if he'd go with us to church Diane and I tried not to have shock on our faces and we said yes he went four weeks in a row and then he signed up for the church mission trip to the Dominican Republic we thought maybe he just wanted to see another country in fact it was all adults there were no teenagers going but on that trip God touched and changed his heart and he came home a different teenage boy started going to Sunday school a youth group midweek and then he came to me and said I think I want to go to college and I said that's great Johan but the problem is you've made all D's and F's you can't get into college unless you do really well on the SAT and I'll buy you the book if you promise you're gonna study it I was happy to buy the book it's this thick friends he not only read it he remembered it he took the test and scored in the top 3% of all who take the test and Diane and I are kind of in shock what's going to happen next we're looking at each other so we don't push him on anything and th three to four weeks later he gets a letter of acceptance from a private Christian college in the mail and we didn't know he'd even applied and the college was Oral Roberts University where I used to go but if I had tried to talk him into going you think he would have last year was his freshman year he made eight A's and one B eight A's and one B does God still touch and change hearts and lives I don't know but Diane and I think so you know as well as I do today that life's not very fair we don't all start with the same cards to play the game not the same parents not the same environment not the same home and today it's pretty popular to blame our parents for where we are but I want to tell you one last story today true story they're all true you can google it read his story online his name is Robert Allen he was born in the mountains of northern Tennessee 
His mother ran away with the traveling shoe salesman when he was five. He was raised by his Aunt Bevy and his grandpa. Aunt Bevy had school education through the eighth grade. Grandpa had none. They lived in a shack, and the shack had no running water, no electricity, and no outhouse. I'm sorry, no bathroom. They had an outhouse. No wonder it only cost 20 bucks a month. Robert was not allowed to go to school. Grandpa needed his help in the upholstery shop, which brought in just enough money to stay afloat. Aunt Bevy was committed to teaching young Robert to read. And so after all the chores were done by the fire of the lantern in the fireplace, she would teach him to read in the evenings. And they only had two books in the house, and one was the Bible, and so that's what he practiced reading out loud. And by the time he was 13, he had read through the New Testament out loud three times. Pretty impressive, even for an adult. And that's when Aunt Bevy was able to persuade Grandpa to let Robert walk to town. It was two miles to Rosser, the little town, go to the public library and to check out books. Well, he was allowed four per week. Every Saturday, he walked two miles to town, got four books, turned in four. And he did that for 15 years. And at age 28, he had read all 3,000 books in the little town library. Age 28, his grandpa died. They closed the upholstery shop. And Robert and Aunt Bevy said, it's time to see if you can go to school. He hitchhiked to a town 40 miles away in McKenzie, Tennessee, where there was a small Presbyterian college called Bethel. And we got there, he was guided to the uh, admissions department. And there he met and explained his situation, and she believed it. Because he was wearing overalls, a torn white dress shirt, he was bald on top, he was missing all his front teeth, and he's wearing old boots. She originally tried to talk him out of taking it, didn't want to embarrass him. But she relented, let him take the test. To her surprise, he not only passed the test, he clepped out of the entire freshman year of college. Is that even possible? So at age 29, Robert Allen attended his very first day of school as a college sophomore. Two and a half years later, he graduated with a 3.92 GPA, the highest in his class. The Bethel faculty rallied together, collected money, bought him new teeth, and his first suit ever. Upon graduation, he was awarded a full fellowship to Vanderbilt University, where he proceeded to get his master's and doctorate. Then for 31 years, he was the dean of the English department, a professor at the University of Tennessee, Martin. And during those 31 years, every week, he taught high school Sunday school class at the small Baptist church. A reporter asked him if he didn't feel resentful and bitter for what he had been through. I love what he said. He said, no, what I've been through have made me who I am. And God has blessed me along the way. How could I not give back? 
Friends, the story of Robert Allen tells me it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And there are a million excuses to make in the game of life. Nehemiah had many opportunities to make excuses. It was a difficult assignment. But he prayed. He trusted God. He moved forward in faith. And God used him and blessed others because of him. I don't know what's going on in your life today. I just know life is difficult. And sooner or later, we all face opposition. I also know that God promises to walk with us, whatever we face, and not just to get us through, but to give us joy in the midst of it. It's possible today for the joy of the Lord to still be our strength. Possible. Possible for me, possible for you. Friend, that's my prayer for each of us this next week. That we would not only have the strength for what we're facing, but we would have joy in the midst of it. Because I promise you, God can do that. And in your life, he will, if you let him. Amen. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.naplescommunitychurch.org. If you happen to be visiting Naples, please drop in for our Sunday service at 10 a.m. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fabulous day.